strategies you can use as a private investor to be more effective. Uh, maybe two out of these 18 are a crossover from yesterday's presentation I gave, but a few people said I talked very quickly, and as soon as I started to think about something I said, I was telling them three more things. Um, so any idea that's repetitive uh, will be for you if that was uh, bad yesterday, but also I'll try to just give a practical example and a case study instead of taking time to explain the three compartments of your investment portfolio. I'll just give a couple case studies or examples that hopefully uh, make it all more practical. Uh, the more questions you have, the better, so feel free to raise your hand at any time. If you have an insight that's really helpful for your portfolio, raise your hand. We can share it with the audience. It might be better than any idea I have on my slides. And uh, if something doesn't make sense or there's a word I used, you know, like RIA or something like that from this morning, uh, feel free to let me know. This is from a webinar we did, um, but I think Forrest is, is recording this as well. Not sure if it's working. <laughs> All right, disclaimer. So I think most of you were here yesterday, but uh, I'm Richard Wilson. I started the Family Office Club 12 years ago, and we advise families, most of them over 100 million, some at 16 million, some at, at 20, 30 million, on uh, basically direct investment program development and how to start their single family office or virtual family office. Uh, we do 25 live events a year. And uh, I've met over 2,000 family offices in person, so that's where a lot of the insights come from. But even more so, it's listening to these family stories and then implementing how they created their wealth in an effective way and implementing that within my own business model. Uh, and also working with clients face-to-face -face and email texting, calling with them every day, uh, including weekends sometimes. And uh, it's enjoyable because these are the winners in the game of capitalism. None of my clients won the lottery. None of them inherited their money. They created money by creating value in their business. So I think that um, related to you know, the talk we just heard, I think that knowing who you want to be a hero to first and second and third is really important. And another uh, Dan Sullivan concept is knowing your own unique ability. And there's a workbook that he has called Unique Ability 2.0. And you complete that, and you do three or four psychological uh, little exams that cost you maybe $20 each. Then you ask 10 people who know you very well for over a decade what they think your unique ability is. Then you think to yourself uh, what it is as you're getting that feedback and the test results. And the end of that workbook is you know yourself much better than most human beings do and most business people do. And then you can focus your time not only in who you want to be a hero to, but also the types of things you're doing every day. Because if you're good at sourcing apartment buildings but not negotiating the deal or managing it, then you should build your team around that. So I think that's important and a takeaway I've gotten from my clients and just uh, in different groups I'm in. All right, so we're going to go uh, pretty quick through this because I'd like to have a little bit more time for questions than I did uh, yesterday. Uh, the first thing here is some people get hung up on whether they need a virtual family office or a single family office or should we just join a multifamily office. The main insight, though, that I've seen over the last decade is that you shouldn't get slowed down by this type of thing and not do anything for two years or three years if you just had an exit or you're about to have one because there is no uh, perfect answer to this and everybody has usually both. In other words, almost everyone needs a multifamily office or a private bank for some part of their portfolio. It's just whether it's 10% or 90% of your portfolio. How much you want to do in-house just depends on how much control you want. It's not an either or decision and a lot of families get hung up on that 
and then they just sit there and they don't do anything uh, for a long time and just sit on the cash and pay extra taxes, et cetera. The second insight is that a family office dashboard costs you absolutely nothing. So every single family here in the room should have a planning document for yourself that has one page with just your mission, your wealth creation story, your values, uh, your objectives, um, what's most important to you and your family. The next page could have where you're looking at deal flow and why. Uh, it could have what's in your portfolio now. And the issue is that um, you know I'm not intimately familiar with how, how Forrest uh, does things with you guys and he does consulting, so forgive me for that. But one issue that a lot of investors have, private investors have, is that they might have some old angel investments they've done. They might have some rental properties. They might have invested in a, you know, one of Craig's self-storage deals, et cetera. Uh, and then there's their wealth portfolio. Many times that's never in the same report, or it's many times not aggregated into one report. And then just when you sit down with your spouse or people on your team, just making sure you're looking at the broad scope of things, because if someone comes into your office and they're not coming through your wealth advisor and they're pitching you, hey, do you want to invest in our new mobile startup uh, app, or do you want to invest in our direct-to-consumer Amazon company or in our apartment building deal, um, and it's coming to you through a friend or a referral, it's helpful to look back at this document and say, well, this is what we said our strike zone was, and these are the reasons why, and here's what's in our portfolio right now. And having that all in one place, in one concise document, it doesn't have to be an expensive piece of software, is very helpful. And then one page of this is usually who's on the team, who are all your service providers, and what are their contact details, and which one is the problem one that needs to get switched out at some point or supplemented, and having that documented. So if something had happened to you, your spouse knows who all those service providers are, your family knows, and as a group, you know who you're looking out for in terms of who's missing from that equation. And then the final page for all my clients uh, I always have in place is what are you going to improve? So it could be monthly or quarterly. Uh, my wife and I do this quarterly. But is what, what do we need to improve for our family, for our family business holdings, for our investment portfolio over the next quarter? And then we have those objectives. And that way you're always moving the ball forward. And you're not just looking at a couple investment deals, but you're, you're thinking a little bit more holistically about we need this, we need a better, higher quality CPA or more proactive tax planning instead of just tax preparation. That might be one thing. We need to move forward finally, yes, no, on working with this one investment manager. I've been talking to them for two or three years. So let's either do it or not, uh, et cetera. So uh, very simple uh, ideas, but you don't know how many 100 million plus families I talk to that have 10 full-time people on their team and might be paying the head of their family office half a million a year, and they don't have a simple planning document. They don't have everything in one simple uh, dashboard like this. There's no reason not to. Um, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I had to blow through the slide because we were uh, getting into it late. Um, but making sure that the way that you build your family office or virtual family office or your investor work uh, is in line with who you are as people and that you just don't work with people that you think are jerks, that you get people off your team you don't enjoy working with. I think a lot of us would define success as being able to um, you know, cut people out of your life that just cause friction and just aren't the same type of people as you are. Um, also, I think it gives your family freedom to do that more liberally when everyone knows, you know, who you put up with in the world versus who you don't. Um, and also, the more that you have your values created, the more that you will attract others 
and then your team will be more loyal to you because they know that, you're kind of, that you kind of have this immune system of not allowing clients into your firm or not allowing people into your group who aren't at a high level and who aren't um, adding extra strate strategic value versus just kind of being there. Yeah, yeah, it's our family crest. <clears throat> yeah, sure. So um, I grew up with this version uh, on a wooden plaque in my house growing up. And, um, you know, the, the family name actually goes back to the 1500s. And my grandpa was like a historian. Uh, and he would look back and he tracked it back to like what ship our family came over to England on and, and when we came to the United States, which was like in the late 1700s. And then. John Wilson was a Presbyterian, um, like minister, uh, pastor, and uh, and he, he was in Boston. And when I started our business, you know, I wasn't smart enough to latch onto this. You know, I started it, and it was called. Um, we had the hedge fund group, like a networking group. We had an investment blog. And then as that grew, I realized that when I wrote about family offices and capital raising and hedge funds, that people cared most about family offices and then about capital raising and then hedge funds. And so I realized after two or three years that we should have more of the focus be on family offices. So we called it Family Office Group. And we had this ugly green and blue kind of patchwork logo that meant nothing. Um, and then I was at home one day in my dad's office, and I looked to the side, and on the wall was this, uh, the plaque here. And I realized, like, oh, well, it's the most natural thing to do is just use our family's family crest because it's related to family offices and our family history, et cetera. And uh, then I went on to 99designs, and um, I think on the other slides you can see the logo, but they, they made it so the hair is a little bit more spiky. We took the blood drops off the head, I guess, and uh, cleaned this up a bit. Um, but it just made for a really uh, natural, natural logo, basically. So I got a little lucky there. But um, some people ask, like, oh, well, do you come from some ultra-wealthy family? And the answer is no. I didn't grow up homeless. But uh, you know, I, when I went to school, my parents paid for tuition. But I didn't have money for extra food or for you know, going crazy or getting a Mercedes on my 16th birthday, nothing like that at all. So I think that's part of the values that my family passed on is really uh, making sure that we didn't have too much extra money. And if I wanted any spending money in college, I had to work in the computer lab. I had to come up with business ideas. I remember looking at my cell phone in college and getting a girl's phone number and not having $3 to buy her a cup of coffee. And I was like, man, this sucks. You know? And uh, that's good. That's what you want to do to your kids that are here. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I think uh, that's the problem with. Um, with family offices many times. They send their kids to 40,000 a year preschools, and they have five houses, and they're on private jets. And then how do you make them hungry like you were? You know, it's almost impossible. So you have to come up with, with challenges and really make them, you know, create challenges for them. Any other questions on this for the last two slides? Um, you know, I remember a story from one family office. They said their kids got on an airplane once, and they were sitting down in first class, and they turned around and looked back and said, what are all these people doing on our airplane? Because <laughs> they're used to flying on their own private airplane, right? It's like, it seems unreal. But uh, most of us experience that at a different level. But a lot of people here might have your kids in a $8,000 a year private school, or you might sometimes fly first class, or just go on vacations or own a couple of homes. 
So was that you growing up? You know, for a good percentage of you, you know, maybe not. Maybe you had it harder, and that's why you work so hard. Um, ethical policies are something that can prevent um, some of the worst possible things happening to your family. Uh, you know, many families get torn apart by the wealth, and then the wealth gets destroyed. Uh, and it's because of lack of uh, understanding and lack of protection of different processes that should be in place. Uh, you know, requirements of should someone have to go to school? Or are you going to allow your son to run the business even though he dropped out of college because he had too much fun at the frat house and after six years paying tuition, he said, enough. You know, just come work in the business. Or are you going to make the family work outside the business before they're allowed to come into the business? Or are you going to make somebody... Uh, be a responsible human being before they inherit any money or before you help them buy a house? Or are you going to pay for their school even if they want to get their PhD in history where the only job is to teach history to other people who want a PhD in history? Uh, or do you only pay for degrees that have some functional execution in the real world? Uh, or can they do whatever they want, wherever they want, with however much money they want? You know, so having all of that set up so that from the beginning there's a really clear understanding uh, is really important. Uh, we're going to skip over this slide just for time's sake. All right, so when I talked about this yesterday, I had a few people ask me, you know, by the pool and the bar yesterday, just about how to make this more practical for what they're doing. And I think related to the last presentation on what is success and how do you define success, that directly impacts everything that you do here. So if your definition of success is you get to work on really exciting projects here, and the rest of your portfolio is managed to the extent that if something would happen to you, you have enough income coming here and enough emergency funds here that everything is okay. That might be your definition of success, while others just want to work uh, a few hours a day, and they really want to just oversee something here. Uh, and I know that many of you are still in a medical practice, and I spoke to several of you yesterday networking who are basically trying to figure out, uh, they have this part in place, but you're trying to figure out this. You've made maybe two to three investments, two to four investments is what most, most people seem to be at. Uh, and then here, most people I talked to had their own practice with, again, two to four other locations, and they're expanding their dental or their medical practice. And so I think part of being here is evolving what you see your vision as. Who do you enjoy serving more than anyone else? who uh, needs a lot of help, but also is the crossroads where there's not a lot of competition there. Um, and where do you think is the most natural application of the growth here? Because you all have challenges on growing these two areas to the next level. Uh, who, do you, who do you trust? How much income do you need versus risk? How much appreciation? Here, oftentimes, you might have uh, partners that are slowing down your vision for what you really want to do. Uh, or you need capital to expand, or people don't value your practice at the level you want to exit at until you get it to 10 or 20 locations. So figuring out the actual, the exact game plan that you want to play that's going to take advantage of your background is one of the most important investments of energy I think you can do by coming here and talking to your peers. Because if you can figure out, not, not a copy template of what someone else is doing, but figure out what's unique to your situation, like maybe you have a unique, unique procedure or unique uh, device idea that you're thinking about, and there might be a way to execute here that no one else in the room could do or no one else in your market could do. And so by applying your energy there 
in trusting best-in-class providers here, you might get a double or triple return investment-wise because it's use of your nat natural skill sets. And I think a big mistake is to try to do everything yourself and try to move up eight learning curves at once. Uh, instead, if you focus on your strengths and double down, triple down on what you enjoy doing and are excellent at, then that's where you get a better ROI. And I think family offices, um, again, at all levels, you kind of expect sometimes when you talk to someone who's at 50 million or 100 million plus, they've got it all figured out and they've heard everything before and everything is well organized and everything's well focused. Many times they are hardworking just like you. Maybe they're right place, right time, and very hardworking and we're on the front of a big trend coming and it carried them forward, but they have the exact same challenges that many of you here are facing. Um, so I found it's not the case that people have thought this over. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Um, I wanted to see if anyone had questions because we went through it really quickly within one or two minutes uh, yesterday. Does anyone have questions about how to apply this to what they're doing or a challenge that someone is facing? Yeah, David. I just had a follow-up. He's turning it up. There you go. I had a uh, follow-up to, I think, what was the question from yesterday. When you're looking at the, the two axes and the different charts, is it binary, yes or no? Or is it some kind of percentage of the, how much control do I want? How do you, how do you kind of fill this out? We usually just do yes or no. Uh, the only thing is that if you're working with a wealth advisor, uh, obviously they're going to derive the strategy, hopefully, from getting to know you very, very well. So whether you're helping them with that strategy or they're just pulling it out of your brain, you know, it just comes down to semantics. But usually it's a yes or no. Like, do we want to be doing due diligence on real estate deals? Most families would say no, right, unless you made your money in that area. And that's a really key thing is, like, where, where is your wealth created or where do you really want to invest your brain and your energy going forward for the next decade? Um, for example, Gene obviously is focused on residential assisted living. So um, is it good for him to be uh, analyzing stocks and bonds and trying to look at technical analysis charts on commodities and trading gold? You know, probably not, right? But many of us are probably keeping th some things close to us or trying to move up these learning curves that are just kind of painful versus surrounding ourselves with the best people possible in those areas. Any other questions on this to make it more, more practical? Okay. So uh, this is something that I haven't heard uh, come up at this event yet. Uh, I missed some of the content on Friday coming in here. But uh, there's a lot of trends in the family office space of wanting more control. The whole reason why family offices exist is that people say, hey, I should kind of know what's going on in each division and not have my wealth advisor tell me one thing. And then two months later, my CPA says something and says, don't forget to do this. And then four months later, an insurance agent tells you something and there's some tax benefit with a life insurance policy. And then you meet with some other people through HSA. They give you some advice, et cetera. And now this is all swirling around in your head and you're the one that's supposed to keep this all straight while you're running your four dental clinics, while you're looking at deal flow. You know, uh, the more successful you are, the easier it is to forget little details and like little fine print, especially if the details of taxation is not your strength. That's why family offices exist, to make things more holistic, well-planned, prevent those mistakes. But along with that was that uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, almost everyone in your position would just invest in funds or buy single-family rentals. There were not many independent sponsors at all. That term doesn't even exist 15 years ago. The term was called fundless sponsors. 
but independent sponsors didn't like being called fundless sponsors, so they kind of morphed that name into independent sponsors, like maybe seven to ten years ago, and now those have exploded in popularity. Most people would rather know what their money's going into rather than putting it into a fund and then having it be spread around. Uh, and that's very much in line with the more that family offices grow, the more that independent sponsors grow. A lot of people are at big private equity real estate shops and they spin out and say, hey, I'm going to do this, but use the new model of going deal by deal. So this is all in the trend of people want more control more accountability, more transparency, they want to know what their money's going into. And along with that trend are these structures of uh, having a co-GP relationship uh, with somebody. So what is a co-GP relationship? So GP, LP um, is a fundamental term of an investment, investment investor relationship where usually you and your liability, it would be limited usually to the money you put into a deal as an LP. You're putting in money to earn money passively from the work that the GP is doing. So whether it's a real estate deal you know, through David or a self-storage deal through Craig, uh, et cetera, if you're the GP, you're organizing the deal, you're sourcing it, you're negotiating it, uh, you've got a, a fee a term sheet for the investors. As an investor, you need to do your due diligence as thoroughly as you can, and if you decide to invest, you put your money in, and besides reports coming to you, and maybe they ask for a little bit of feedback if you're in the space, you know, you're just passively have your money in there. That's the LPGP relationship. And a co-GP relationship is if, let's say, you have 25 dental clinics or 10 dental clinics, and you know what it's like to lease a medical office building. You know that uh, dentists might be gun-shy on buying real estate. They're like, hey, I'm a dentist. I'm busy being a dentist, uh, so I'm not going to buy the building I'm in, et cetera. Well, a co-GP relationship would be you identifying a medical office building investment group who is looking for more deal flow, and maybe through your practices, you know that five out of the 15 buildings that you're operating in could be purchased, and you see that you could help them in maybe getting dentists to invest in their medical office building fund or independent sponsor. And the co-GP relationship means that instead of just coming in as an LP, you can add strategic value, you can source deals or source investors and come in as a co-GP, which would mean kind of like their partner uh, in the fund, which means you're either gonna not pay fees or just a little bit of a performance fee or a much lower waterfall. So this is something that is, um, most family offices have never heard the word co-GP. They don't know how it works, they don't know how to negotiate it, uh, they don't know what it means. But if you identify someone that you think is doing very well and you have a way to open doors for them or really help them and propel their business, you might be able to partner with them. Uh, if you're at a level where you're, you're at 10 million uh, plus net worth, you might be able to find someone you think is really excellent, they're really committed, they do good quality deals, and you see them growing nicely over the last two to four years, but they're not a big fund yet or a big independent sponsor. And you could say to them, and multifamily offices and, and single family offices do this, the ones who know about this quite often, uh, and they'll say, well, I think you're gonna be a, a huge success. Uh, we could help make some introductions. We'll be on your advisory board. And we'll systematically, we'll allocate to every deal you do and we'll fill up 10% of that LP base that you need. If you're raising $400,000 for your next deal or let's say $2 million, we'll put in 200,000. As long as it meets these criteria that you say you're always doing, you know, we still get a yes, no veto, but we'll systematically invest in all of your deals plus open doors for you, et cetera. But in exchange, we want performance fee only. Or in exchange, we just want this little fee that still respects your work, but really we want to be your partner in growing this. And with some family offices, they'll even say, we'll invest in your mothership company, and instead of investing in your next deal, 
will allow you to take 500000 off the table and pay off that mortgage so you can push on the gas on this model so you don't have a personal mortgage and you have no debt at all and you feel more free to really do uh, and pursue your vision on flipping Gary or whatever your vision is. And they just enable you personally to do so and say, we don't mind you taking that money off the table. We see that you're committed. But in exchange for doing so, we want to own 7% of your independent sponsor firm. So each deal you do after this, we're a 7% partner in it and we're not paying any fees. But you're, usually when an independent sponsor does a deal, uh, if you don't know this, they're usually putting up 10% of the deal in equity. Sometimes 20, but usually 10. Uh, and so they could say, well, when you put up that 10%, we're going to be putting up 7% of that 10% because we now own 7% of your mothership, of your, your GP firm. And so we want to become a true partner with you, a co-GP partner, and in that sense, just help you move faster through the world and get more deals done. So the reason why I wanted to explain that is a lot of investors get confused by what LP and GP mean, and they don't know what those terms mean exactly, or they've never heard the term co-GP. It's just a way where maybe one out of every 30 investment firms you talk to might be so related to what you do and you have such insight with it, they might say, well, let me get to know this group. Maybe this is an opportunity where you know, it can be a great leverage of your expertise and your money at a whole nother level above just being a passive investor. So that's just something to uh, try to keep an eye out for. Um, also, what's interesting in having 6,000 plus people come through our conferences is everybody says their fees are industry standard, even though they're all over the map. So people will say, yeah, we do a 6% pref, and then we take 50% of profits, and that's pretty much industry standard. And I've seen them raise hundreds of millions of dollars doing that. And like more power to them, I guess. Uh, they're going to be retired faster than I will be. Uh, there's other people that say, well, we have an 8% preferred return, and then we take 20% of profits, and that's industry standard. Even though that second set of terms is much more favorable to you as an investor. So you should just uh, know that just because they say it's industry, industry standard, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, they might just think it is in their brain or as part of their sales pitch. So just watch out for that. Um, and I would also look for managers that wear on their sleeve their confidence in their, in their abilities through their structure and their fee model. So um, on the other side, when I'm talking to fund managers, sometimes they'll say, yeah, well, the industry standard is, is 2 in 20, or the industry standard is taking 30% of profits. Should we do that? And I was like, well, do you want to be standard and lost in the crowd, or do you want to have a better model than everyone else? I mean, why would you want to be standard and, and average, right? That doesn't make any sense. So that's part of my feedback to them. And I tell them, look, if you want to really attract investors faster, show them that you're more aligned and you're just being long-term greedy and not short-term greedy. Because if you're managing a $500 million organization, you can have much leaner fees and make a lot more money than the person that has fat fees, but they're managing $50 million. So um, I know that uh, Mike uh, from, from RMC had a family issues. So I don't think he was able to come this time. He's a friend from, from Group RMC, and he's a great guy, and they have a great team. But um, they have a really unique model in their fee structure. It's not why people invest. They don't say, oh, wow, your fee structure is so amazing. It's, uh, you know, we're just going to invest based on that. You know, they're a great team. They have an excellent strategy, you know, good returns. But also, they have a very unique fee structure. And when I met them, I said, wow, nobody is doing this. And in 12 years, I've never seen anyone do this through the Family Office Club. And, you know, we see a lot of stuff. And they were at $400 million in assets then. And they're at $1.3 in assets now, just three years later. And so... Uh, yesterday, I was speaking here with a friend who's in the multifamily space I've known for years. I used to be in an EO forum with him, so I know him very well. 
And he was looking at the math, because I was showing him, you know, what Group RMC does and saying, like, hey, I think, you know, uh, having a more alternative fee structure might be a wave of the future in a way to differentiate yourself. But he's like, he's like, yeah, but the fees are like a third or a fourth of what I would get if I charged the old way. I was like, yeah, that's the point. Like, the investors will see that you're more aligned, but if you do work very well, they're going to invest in your next deal, and your next deal, and your next deal, and then you get that momentum. And if you look out seven years out, you can get more fees short term by charging a lot, but if you have it based on success and you make it lean, you just get that momentum, then that helps things move forward. So with with our investors, you know what we do is we don't uh, we don't do it. Forest does. We don't do it. Any wealth management firm does. Really, we don't do it. Multifamily offices do. We just help get direct investment deal flow, and our deal flow has to compete against what uh, you're seeing or what our clients are seeing. And only if they allocate to the deal, then we charge a 10% performance fee. And there's no other fee. There's no other acquisition or management or consulting fee or retainer. We used to charge retainers and just cause friction. And then some clients we really wanted to work with would go really slow just because of a, a retainer, regardless of how much it was. And other clients would uh, do the retainer, but then never execute on a deal. So in both cases, it wasn't really ideal for us. But people say, well, why don't you charge 15 or 20%? Because that's more close to industry standard. And I say, well, I want to get to a billion dollars in assets under advisory you know, in our first 12 months uh, of opening the, the RIA, because we had a broker-dealer licenses before. So I would just uh, look for people who are playing the long game, look for people who are aligned, look for co-GP opportunities. If you negotiate with every investment manager you meet with and try to negotiate a co-GP when it makes no sense, they're going to very quickly say no. And it's just not going to be a, a good use of time. And it might even be insulting to them that you don't want to pay for their hard work. It has to be someone where you really can open the door to them and do something very strategic you know, with them. So how many people here watch Shark Tank sometimes, at least? So you know, Mr. Wonderful is like my favorite guy up there, because he just says the candid truth and tells people to take it behind the shed and shoot it if he needs to. Uh, and he also gets better valuations on deals if it's related to weddings or birthdays, et cetera, because he has his platform for that. And so whether it's sending you know, cupcakes or pop-up cards or whatever, he has that strategic value. And that's why they say, well, that's great that you raised a $9 million valuation from your golf club friends, but welcome to the Shark Tank. We're adding a lot of strategic value here. So this is the valuation that you get in our world. And so um, what I'm saying is that one out of every 20 investments you see might be you being Mr. Wonderful and being able to really be strategically valuable. So I'd keep an eye out for those, because that can be a really interesting thing to have happen in your portfolio, because then you're leveraging their work and you're leveraging your money. So it's not just leveraging your money, you're also leveraging their work uh, within that structure. Any questions uh, about that? The other thing I'd say related to uh, joint ventures is just that um, many people become wealthy and for whatever reason, I think it's because there's so many of them, they start investing in startups. Everyone's got a startup, everyone has an idea, they want you to fund. Uh, you put your money at risk for their dream. They've been waiting to start, uh, but they haven't got it you know, made to progress yet. And I think that it's interesting to see this, and this happens at every level of net worth, even with families that, um, like one family in the Northeast, they sold their business for a billion dollars, and they're, they're still investing in startups that are not proven. And uh, it's okay sometimes to invest in a startup if you really know what they're doing and they're in your space, perhaps, or you have control, or you've known the person for a very long time. 
But uh, what I found is that most families gravitate over time through painful lessons and money getting burned to investing in companies that are already making a million in revenue, half a million in revenue, and the market has proven there's demand for it. They figure out the pricing, they figure out operations, they have a team that actually works together. A startup has about 12 types of risk that a company doing just a million in revenue and making 200,000 a year, uh, they've taken nine of those 12 risks off the table. Are they gonna be able to scale? That's still another question. You know, are they going to be able to have the right leadership at the next level? You know, is it too niche? You know, there's still lots of risks, but not nearly as many. So you're much better off usually uh, going to a company that has something proven that you understand and paying a multiple on profits perhaps and paying 2.5 to four times profits to get into a company already making money rather than funding somebody's dream and they don't know how to execute, they don't know how to follow up. Uh, you're going to be their learning curve again, and that's going to be painful. Uh, so I would restrict most of your uh, investments into companies at that level, because it's a real big mistake of new families uh, not doing so. So uh, one trend I talked about uh, for just maybe 10 seconds yesterday was just um, doing performance-focused, performance-only fee models, and what I find is that some investors are scared then that someone's going to spike up the risk and just try to get a huge performance fee, and if it doesn't go well, then the investor loses their money, so they might be taking a lot of risk to get that performance fee, and a lot of investment managers say, oh no, I couldn't do that because this will be the perception, but I see that in the future, uh, there's going to be a more sophisticated model where the performance fee could go into an escrow account that gets dripped out over eight or 16 quarters. So if there's a drawdown, then that manager loses the performance fee. It gets taken out of the performance fees. So that way they can't take just a real concentrated risk and put 100% of your portfolio into Amazon stock right before an earnings call and hope it hits big so you get a big fee on you this quarter. That money would go into an escrow account and gets dripped out slowly uh, over uh, a number of months or a number of years. And it's really interesting because um, the SEC in the wealth management space, uh, you know, the normal mode of wealth management is to charge like a percentage, like a oh, 1% on your assets or something like that, right? And some people do a, a consulting fee as an alternative. But it's interesting because they're more restrictive about a performance fee, which is really interesting if you think about it. The SEC is saying like, just charge your clients all the time. Um, if you charge them a performance fee, you know, watch out, because there might be some bad actors. Don't pay people for when they make you money. Just pay them all the time. That's, that's safer. It's really interesting. Uh, when I read that, I'd read it like three times. Be like, what? And then it, they said, like, well, we don't want people to be spiking up the risk, and then the investor can lose, or they make a lot of money. And I think this is one of the solutions to it. Like, in the investment industry, where we have options and complex hedge fund strategies, and just figuring out the reporting and consolidation of reporting to do for your clients as a wealth advisor is fairly complex and annoying to do. It's, it's fairly hard to do with expensive software. So why is it the whole industry isn't sophisticated enough to come up with a model where it's performance-based, but it gets dripped out over time? Just kind of strange, and I think it's just inevitable that that's going to come out at some point and be developed more and will be something you see more in the future. So just keep an eye out for that. Uh, we went through this pretty quick yesterday, but my main point is that when you first become liquid, you're going to get more deal flow, or when you start going to groups like this, you're going to get more deal flow than you were before. You know, start feeling like, wow, there's a lot of things to consider. There's a lot of deals here. Uh, but what's interesting is some people think that a lot of deal flow is, um, like one of my friends sold to Bed Bath & Beyond. He said, wow, I've been flooded with deals. I've probably seen 40 deals the last three years. Like Forrest probably gets 40 deals a week sent to him. 
right? Uh, we see at least 40 deals a week uh, coming in, if not sometimes per day. Sometimes from a single email blast, we'll have three, 400 replies, and like at least half those people are raising capital from something. So when you are trying to get smart on deals and trying to get better deal flow, it's really about getting a statistically relevant amount of deal flow in an area where you can actually intelligently see what is an anomaly, what is average, what's better than average. Because if you look at 40 stem cell deals, even if you knew nothing about stem cells before, after looking through the material, some are going to make a lot more sense, some will be a lot more credible, some are going to have a longer track record, uh, a lot of them are going to look the same, and a few are going to look really exceptional, some will have better terms than others. But if you're not looking at enough where you can start getting that insight, then you don't know whether you're making good investments. That's why you need to be uh, in groups like this, because otherwise you just hear about a deal or two from your friends over a poker game or at the school function for your kids, and then you're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Oh, that's their fees? Okay, well, sounds reasonable. They said it's industry standard, but like, you know, in the back of your mind, you're kind of scared because you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't have that frame of reference, it can be painful and challenging. And people will think it's a lot of deal flow to see 40 deals over three years, and it's really not. And so trying to find that balance for you is partially why you need to have this focus. There's no way that you can be excellent at investing in Amazon companies and dry cleaners and biotech and in dental clinics. You know, there's no, even multi-billion dollar families aren't good at investing in all those things. So that's why I keep on hammering that point home. The more that you know what your strike zone is and all of these components of the strike zone and all the things that you prefer to see, then the better your due diligence will be, the more high conviction you'll be on every investment you make, the more you'll know where you need to trust others. And uh, we'll get to the other benefit uh, of this in, in just a slide or two uh, down the road. So Dan Kennedy uh, always says the most dangerous number is one. He also, one of my favorite sayings from him is, whatever everybody else is doing, uh, if you're not sure what to do, just do the opposite. Because usually everyone's wrong. You know, the average person is $10,000 in credit card debt, has not saved anything for retirement, doesn't know what they want to do, you know, for the rest of their life, doesn't have passive real estate income coming in. If you're on the investment manager side here, everybody's emailing investors they don't have a relationship with yet, trying to build a relationship, and investors get hundreds of emails a week. I asked on stage in San Francisco, how many of you actually get just a one-page piece of thought leadership in a flat envelope that just adds value to you, it's not selling you on their hedge fund, you know, or their senior living offering, et cetera, and it's just adding value to you, and it's coming to you just once a month. Zero hands went up. No one ever sends them anything that's just adding value and comes in the old school mail. And if you're raising capital, if the top 300 investors you're reaching out to aren't worth spending $1 each on postage, then stop trying to raise capital from them and add value to them first. Everybody's using email, so don't use email. Use text, use, use direct mail, et cetera. And that goes for anyone who owns any business in here, I think. Text message gets 93 uh, read rate. Emails get an 8% read rate. You know, we're all, we're all annoyed by what the masses are doing. So doing something that's totally unique and different uh, is what we're always looking for and what we're always encouraging our clients to do. Another example is a manufacturing auto parts family just had an exit um, for a couple hundred million. And we were talking to them about strategies. And I, I talked to them about branding their family office to attract auto parts manufacturing deal flow but also about what's the bigger game that could be playing, the more complex game. So it's more of a chessboard that's very strategic uh, and 
others don't have all the same pieces they have on the table. So instead of just buying, you know, eight auto part manufacturing companies that are like your pawns and just trying to move them forward on the board, which that alone would be better than spreading their money all over because they could cross-sell products and they would learn a lot about due diligence, et cetera. Um, it's even more interesting to think about how do you acquire a 10% equity stake in the number one auto parts uh, expo in Las Vegas each year where there's 700 uh, vendors coming. And then maybe the companies in their portfolio, they get to put at the front of the expo. So out of 600 people that have exhibit tables, theirs get in the front. Or maybe because they're an owner of the expo, they get to go to the people running it and say, hey, out of the 600 exhibiting, we looked over the list and we want the rights each year to, to cherry pick 10 and get their contact details before the expo and reach out as a co-owner and meet with them before the expo even begins and say, hey, by the way, we own the expo that you just paid $30,000 to exhibit at. How would you like a strategic board member to be uh, part of your team? And we'll put you front row at the expo next year and get you plugged into our other media assets and help improve things and recapitalize your business. Another example is what if the family, and this is the idea we were just talking about this morning with the family, is um, if you acquired an auto parts distribution company, a direct-to-consumer company, maybe a company on Amazon that's a top 20 in the category and has different products, or a website that has hundreds of products on there, now whenever you invest in a company, you can push them through the website. You can source products based on who you're already doing business with within that website. That website should be making money, and it's a little machine that makes money on its own, but a byproduct is you get more deal flow. And then anytime you go to a company and be like, we know your space very well. In fact, you're already on one of our holding company's websites, and if you allow us to invest with you at a valuation of three times profits instead of 4.5, we're going to take you somewhere you haven't been. You can take some money off the table, pay off your mortgage, and we're going to push you through this website and boost your sales. So we're going to pay for what we just bought within the first quarter after closing. And who else has offered that to them? Nobody. And the thing is that if you know who you're trying to invest in, you build that database of 400 prospects, whether it's a medical clinic you want to acquire, an auto park company, and you reach out to them, my experience is most people reply and they say, oh, no one's ever offered to buy my business before. What do you think it's worth? And then you get into the discussion of, of a good valuation based on who you are. If you do the opposite and you wait for an investment banker to come around and uh, show you a nice polished deck of uh, an operating business for sale, uh, as you know, if you're ever trying to sell your medical practice, you want it to be an auction. You want people fighting over your business. But if you are buying, if you are investing, the real estate people here in the room know you don't want the stuff that's on MLS. You don't want the stuff on LoopNet. You want the stuff that's not on the market yet and they have to close quick because of divorce. You want the inefficiency uh, and you want the that you get the inefficiency by knowing exactly what you want and going to people that have never gotten an offer before because they're just a one location medical clinic or because they're a small operating business and then you talk to the CEO directly and you make a strategic offer to them and that's how you get a real advantage. That's why yesterday when I blew through the slide I didn't have time to talk about those examples but I think everyone here in the room could probably take advantage of this now or in the near future just by getting super clear and intentional. So I think like I said yesterday and the number one most important thing in business and life is integrity and integrating everything, like what you eat, what events you go to, who's on your team, what your core values are, what your deal flow is, and having everything highly integrated so there's no friction. But uh, Dan Sullivan says the number one most important thing is intentionality. 
And I think those things are very closely tied. But he says the person who's most intentional wins because they know where they're trying to go, so they're going to get there. If you don't know what your end goal is or what reality you want to live in, how can you live in it? Any questions on these two slides? Okay, so why multiply your deal flow? You need to get a statistically relevant amount so you know what an anomaly is. Investing is all about high conviction, so you need high conviction valuation and due diligence. And then when you do see the right opportunity, you want to have the resources and capabilities, the specialized consultant to help with due diligence or the accounting research you need to do on it, et cetera, so you can move quickly uh, when is needed and act with confidence with it. There's more capital than ever before, so as a private investor, you're competing with others for the deals. So you have to find ways to rise above that competition. And while everyone else plays a generic game, play a more specialized game, uh, and that'll oftentimes get you past. I think some investors um, forget that if a company is at a certain size, everyone's fighting over giving money to them. And uh, lots of people are offering their checkbook to them. So it depends on who you're going to on how much competition there is. But there's more and more capital, more and more private investors fighting over the same pieces of real estate. That's why uh, the real estate markets are where they are. Uh, positioning for deal flow is a lot of things families uh, don't think about. Uh, I see less than 1% of family offices doing this right now. And it is thinking about what deal flow do we want to attract more than everything else and then brand your family office around that so anyone looking for a strategic investor in their space finds you. Everyone's like, no, no, we're private. We don't want anyone knowing we exist. It's like, okay, well, then you're still going to be complaining in three years that you don't have any deal flow. And I think that uh, you can make it so that the domain name protects the who is details and doesn't have your private name. The team just has your team members' names uh, and doesn't use, use your middle uh, name as your last name on the website if you want to protect your family's privacy. All that is good and fine. You don't have to call it the Wilson family office because then no one knows what deal flow to send you. Uh, but if you brand the family office around the strategic value, then you're just going to naturally attract uh, deal flow more quickly. And then when you send a cold email to somebody because you want to invest in their company or acquire their practice, instantly they're going to see that you're a relevant investor and that they've been keeping an eye out for someone just like you. And it's night and day different than emailing someone with a Gmail address as an investor. And then they're like, ah, they might not even reply. And they don't know who you are. So just a three-page website, one-page PDF on what you invest in and why and where you add strategic value and kind of your strike zone and sharing that with others will make it so they don't waste your time. Then they won't come to the meeting or ask you for a meeting if they don't fit your strike zone. Uh, and it will help everyone around you uh, execute uh, more rapidly. And almost no one does this because of privacy concerns or they think, oh, why would we want to be on the radar somewhere, or why would we want to do marketing? We're not trying to attract clients. But in the very same breath, they complain about deal flow. They don't have good enough deal flow, et cetera. So this is one of the solutions to it. And more people are branding their family offices than just three to five years ago. Uh, every year, there's more being branded. Uh, one thing that can help with getting more deal flow as a private investor is to draw out your blueprint. Like, where are the deals concentrated? Are they at an expo? Are they in a group like this? Are they through a CPA who advises all of the types of businesses in your niche? Is there a tax attorney or a state planning attorney or a uh, CCIM type group or a, a dental association or something where they're all congregating and you can speak in front of that group to get deal flow or you can get a membership list of that group or you can be uh, 
the volunteer leader of that group? Or can you be the exclusive, um, if you have a product offering or an investment manager, can you be an exclusive sponsor of that group? Like if there's someone here in multifamily that's raising capital from dentists, you can go to a dental conference or association where everyone's pushing their dental devices, et cetera, and you could have the multifamily, you could give a talk at multifamily, or you could talk about uh, the seven expensive mistakes that dentists make while investing in passive income real estate. And you can just dial it in and just spend the next 10 years just talking about the pains of dentists. And there's a wealth management firm in Canada that's done that for physicians called MD Wealth Management. And they've grown to over a billion dollars uh, in assets, but they only serve physicians only in Canada. And it's very niche focused, but they, they bring in the clients because of that. And I think that if you're on that side of the game here in the room, learning from Forrest and what you have here could be a springboard to greater effectiveness uh, with all of your investor relations, I think. So really, when you're looking for deal flow, you have to figure out where's the deal flow congregating. And uh, like I showed on the blueprint earlier, sometimes visually that can help. We draw out in a whiteboard sometimes uh, all the different places where the deal flow can be. Because the more that you maximize the deal flow you're seeing, the smarter you get, and the more that you're going to find the best deals. If you get 100 deals a year, your top 10% of deals is 10. If you get 500 deals a year, you have 50 to choose from. So you can go to the next level, the 10% of your 10%, and go to the 1%. If you go to 1% of 100 deals, you have one deal to consider. You know, what if the guys on the other side of the country or their team just doesn't really resonate with you, how they act, or how slow they are to follow up? Then now you have no deals, right? So uh, getting, that, getting that grown is important. Focus geographically uh, helps a lot. This could just be on one part of your portfolio. It doesn't have to be for your whole portfolio. But the more that you focus, then typically the faster you can value things and move quickly through the world. Um, it simplifies things. And it makes it so that uh, there's a known scope. So if you're at, at looking at real estate deal flow or medical practices, et cetera, you could get a database of all the dentists in uh, the state of Delaware. Or you could get a database of all the self-storage facilities in New Jersey. And you can look up in the county records who owns those, et cetera, or all the medical office buildings. And then you can go about it systematically and go laser focused on it for at least in one part of your portfolio. Another idea is to build your finder network. Um, I know one billionaire who has 85 people uh, referring deals to him, and he's in a, a real estate business that's related to that. It's associated with his operating business, but because of those deal finders, um, he's literally became a billionaire because of that. He's had enormous success. So um, this goes into something I mentioned a little bit earlier about having a business within your business, like the manufacturing auto parts distribution holding company. Uh, if you can have a business that makes you money, even if it's just 15% uh, profit margins to the 20 you'd like to have, but the byproduct is your deal flow is now excellent, then that's going to pay extra dividends. And it doesn't cost you anything. It's actually making you money. You know? So it's interesting to think about that. It's like, what, what little machines can you set up? Like a, a New York, a different New York real estate family only invests in office parks within a half square mile of Times Square. That's a pretty competitive space to be buying office parks in. But everyone else on planet Earth who buys in that half square mile is also buying in Tokyo, also buys three miles out. They're also buying in London, San Francisco, etc. And by only focusing there 
and by doing maintenance and leasing and brokerage in that same exact area, they know better than the owner of the asset who's not going to renew their lease or when the market's getting soft, and they know on a first-name basis everybody who owns an asset in their circle. And that's the most competitive market in planet Earth, and they're the only ones doing that. So all of you can have an advantage by being more focused. Brian Tracy says that there's a, you can have a, a $10,000 camera, like maybe one of Forrest cameras over here, but you, you can record a better video on a three-year-old iPhone if he's not allowed to focus the camera. So it doesn't matter who you're competing against. If you have a laser focus, then you're going to penetrate and get more done. Like, I shouldn't really exist. I started 12 years ago at a really young age. And the only reason I existed is no one else was focusing on family offices. And when Einstein uh, was awarded a Nobel Prize, they said, oh, wow, you're a genius. You figured this all out. You discovered relativity. And he said, no, I didn't. When I was born, people were working on relativity. They knew it existed. But I thought about nothing else for a decade. And that's how I, that's how I broke it and figured it out. So I think it's the, uh, the laser focus and the playing a more unique, complex game that's true to your DNA is the thing that produces the most power. Um, being holistic is going to get you the most amount of deal flow. So finding two or three communities like this, one that's hyper-local to you, one that's really fun, one hopefully is where you live, um, et cetera, is going to get your deal flow spiked up very quickly. Positioning yourself, proactively reaching out to the target leads and your criteria, acquiring choke points like an equity stake in an expo, et cetera, and then operating in the business, like doing brokerage work on the same office park area where you are investing. Most people um, are in a community or two. They somewhat know what they want to attract, and they're not doing anything else that we talk about up here. Sometimes by default, they're operating within the business, and that's why they want to invest more in the area. But almost no private investors are doing these things. If you forget everything else I've said, and you just try to implement these at a very basic level, your deal flow is going to be much higher and better. So you want to find uh, places where you can have hooks in the water for deal flow swimming by. You want to create nets where you're attracting them systematically and they're coming to you. You want to find where they're congregating. And whether you're raising capital looking for investors or looking for deal flow, you just want to imagine going to a lake and trying to get a spear and throwing the spear into the water to try to get a fish going by it can be pretty hard. Uh, but if you study the lake and figure out where the deals are flowing, where the investors are flowing, and you figure out how to be like the grizzly bear and find the waterfall where the fish are jumping towards you, then everything becomes much more simple. And it's better to invest the energy into positioning yourself first for the deals or for the investors rather than splashing around the water, you know, lunging at the random fish swimming by. It's just not effective and it's painful. Um, I went through this earlier. We talked about royalties yesterday. We talked about this yesterday. Um, almost no family offices or private investors have checklists for what they're doing, except for maybe a due diligence checklist. So definitely put this together. It doesn't matter even if you're at the 5 million or 10 million level. You should have checklists for different things, whether it's an annual process. If you want to kind of create your own virtual family office uh, setup, then you need to be doing this. That's the whole point of having a virtual family office, is systematizing things, making them consistent, making them better organized, and de-risking making expensive mistakes while optimizing how you source deals within the niche that you care about most. So you could do this around how to get more co-GP investments or more real estate deal flow, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> choke point, like in the movie 300, is when a huge army has to go through a very small area 
um, and you know the arm the the army of just three hundred you know held back thousands of of warriors in that movie if you've seen it. Uh, it's been things on the news lately in the Middle East about this exact area, uh, and if this is cut off, then all the trade coming in and out of here can be controlled by just one country or stopped or put to a halt or it causes a major conflict in the area because it's so powerful to do. And the quick story behind it, and this is from uh, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish, is that Rockefeller was competing with many oil tycoons, but then he started buying up the uh, oak barrel companies because that was his bottleneck. That's what slowed him down. So think about what slows you down. But then not only buying up all the oak barrel companies and not providing them to competition that didn't cooperate with him, but now he had cheaper access to the oak barrels and more of them. Then he started buying all the oak groves. And after he owned all the oak groves in the US pretty much and not, didn't supply any oak to the other barrel companies, he started drying the oak so his barrels were lighter weight. And it's so successful that uh, in part mon monopoly rules, which are just starting to impact Amazon and Google it seems like, uh, you know, uh, came into place in part because of how successful acquiring choke points are. So if you can acquire choke points that once you invest in it, now your competition has more pain and your costs go down and everything goes faster for you. Like when we found that five or six of our LinkedIn groups were getting us more clients, uh, we bought 42 groups on LinkedIn and we own more groups on LinkedIn than anyone else in the world in investments, finance, real estate, PE, VC, family offices, and we're never going to sell them. Just like familyoffices.com, capitalraising.com, they're choke points once you have them. Uh, it, no one else can have them because you've already got them or it's hard to displace you. And then I've, I've hammered this home, but I just think it's like so critical and central and it ties everything we talked about together is you need to figure out what unique game you're going to be playing that's not the same of anyone else here in the room. No one else you know can tell you what your game is uh, or, and no one else can say, oh, for sure you should just be doing this. Just keep it simple. If you're at the $5 million level or you're going to be, uh, or more, then you really need to figure out what the unique game is that you want to be playing and what the game rules are and how you keep score and how do you know if you're winning or not. Uh, like my friend Dean Jackson says, he's got these rules of how he knows he's being successful and one of them is like, I know I'm being successful when I wake up in the morning and ask myself, what do I want to do today? And that's one of his rules for the game that he's playing and that could be very different than a rule that you want to live by. Um, Centimillionaires.com. I've got eight free giveaways. If anyone wants a checklist of questions, a book, you know, uh, a quiz, uh, ethics policy, etc. Uh, these, these are some of the books I've written. Get those for free there if you'd like. And that's me when I'm dressed up more like yesterday. <laughs> All right, great. Th thanks, Richard. We'll take a few questions. We got. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Thanks. A couple questions. Raise your hand. So I can see. You guys good? Question? Can you catch? Hey, Richard. Hey. Uh, quick question. Uh, you had mentioned, I think at the very beginning, that you're not working with clients who've inherited money. Right. Did I understand that right? Right. So are you only working with first gen? First gen or early second gen. So um, the first gen is, I think, still alive in every case. Sometimes they're in their 80s, uh, late 80s in one case. But um, the reason why is that we only help with the direct investment portion. We don't do any of the traditional wealth management work. Uh, and really, people want a family office and they want direct investments because they want more control. And usually, it's an entrepreneurial gene and they can't exist without it. And that's what made them survive in the jungle and do well. So we're really just helping them 
take that gene that, that took them to being wealthy, successful, and now apply it to direct investments so they can still have fun and use their passion in that part of their portfolio. Yeah, I ask because I remember having this conversation with my younger son about having looked at the Forbes 400, mm -hmm. and 273 of them were self-made. Right. 127 had inherited the money, and I said, what are we going to learn from the people who've inherited the money? I'd rather, I'd rather focus on the other 273, and that's what we did. Right, that's a really good point. And by generation three, four, uh, the wealth gets uh, distributed among many kids, and lots people are more likely to be claiming as being part of the extended family when someone's worth $100 million or more. And uh, so it gets dissipated, but then even more so when you're at third, fourth, fifth generation, you just don't want to lose great-grandpa's money, so you diversify to the extreme. And the, usually the family can't keep a strength, a major focus, unless they have a major holding like Walmart and the family, they usually don't keep that expertise in high tech beyond two generations. That's why it's first or second generation. By the third or fourth, they're just playing pure defense and they're just diversifying everything to the extreme and that's not really our, our skill set. That's not what we're trying to do for them. Yeah, Mike? Richard, could you explain some Sure, educational programs on family offices. Um, we have a family office certification program, just like we have a, a capital raising one at investmentcertifications.com. Uh, we have at familyoffices.com uh, a free book on family offices. We have at centimillionaires.com the free book on centimillionaires and all the headaches there that I talked about yesterday I think apply to most people here in the room. Uh, and then we have, out of the 25 events a year, we have private investor summits where you get to hear from 30 investors talk about how they're structuring deals, negotiating, what fees they're paying, what new trends they have, what headaches they have, openly sharing on stage. Um, and that can be great for an investor to move up the learning curve uh, quickly, but it's much different than this. It's not medical focused. And only 25% or so of the room is made up of investors in the peer community. The other 75% are people trying to raise capital, uh, et cetera. And if you're raising capital, then um, I recognize some of you from inside the family office club here. Uh, we have capital raising investor relation workshops where for six and a half hours I'll talk up front and just go through 130 slides of ideas and you just kind of pick and choose what you can use for your, for your firm.